The following is produced by Artisan Church. Welcome to the Artisan Church Podcast, a weekly broadcast of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. To learn more about Artisan Church or to support the ministry, visit www.artisanchurch.com. Well, uh, if I didn't, if you weren't here at the beginning of the service, I introduced myself. Then I'll do it again now. My name is Scott. I'm a pastor here at Artisan, and um, I wanted to start out today with a story from uh, when Tracy and I took our 10th anniversary trip to Ireland last fall. It's coming up on almost a year since we did that, and so I can start telling stories again about it now. Um, But I I brought a picture, actually, to show you um, one particular moment of our trip to Ireland that um, I think is really important. Now, I don't know how how well you can see what's going on there, but I wanted to see the the really beautiful green grass back there. Um, I did also bring a close-up of this version so you could see exactly what my wife is doing in this picture. Um, you You can probably see now that that sign reads, Please do not go beyond this point in several different languages. And that is my beautiful wife, Tracy, smiling at me as she goes beyond that point. (laughs) I like to call this trace passing. (laughs) Why Why would they say don't go beyond this point, you may ask? Well, you can kind of see behind there, but the next picture shows exactly why. The... (laughs) The Irish have really specific uh, um, signs. I, I took pictures of signage in Ireland all the time because they, they made me laugh. This one is, I think, you know, rather graphic. <laughs> it's an image of a little stick figure about to fall to his untimely death. Um, and just in case that weren't enough to convince a person, they also had a second sign just to the right of this one that said, protected habitat. <laughs> so it's sort of like, if you will not stay off this dangerous spot to save your own skin, at least do it to protect the birds. (laughs) And then finally, um, uh, the view of what you can actually see if you do go beyond that point. (laughs) This is the Cliffs of Moher in, um, was it Doolin? I don't remember. Uh, But that's 600 feet above the sea, that cliff. So it would be a, a really dangerous place to walk along with no fence. Um, And yet, my wife convinced me to do it. And (laughs) by by basically saying, you're going to have a very boring two hours sitting looking at that sign while I go (laughs) walk along the cliffs if you don't come past that point. So I agreed to go with her. Um, So I I don't know about you, but I was always a rule follower growing up. It, it may be the fact that I was raised in a family of police officers. My dad was a cop and my uncle was a cop, and so the rules seemed very important to me. Uh, it was important that you follow the rules, and if you ask me why, I would just say because they're the rules. Other people were not raised so well. Um, <laughs> 
<laughs> Amen, she says. <laughs> but in seriousness, very often we encounter these rules and we don't exactly know why we're forced to follow them. And we wonder if, if the rules that we follow actually make any difference in our lives in the first place, except possibly to annoy us. And I, I can imagine that all of you, whether it's when you've traveled or maybe where you go to work or whatever it might be, have to follow rules that you think are kind of stupid. Anybody have an example of a really dumb rule that you have to follow? Yes, Jeff. You have to tuck in your shirt. Is that at your place of work? Oh. <laughs> My workplace is not so strict. <laughs> John. Wow. Did you hear that? He has two entrances to his place of work, one on the front and one on the side, and only managers and supervisors can go in the front entrance. Everyone else has to go in the side. Like, <laughs> like we're a bunch of lepers or something. Did you have one too? Yeah, I used to work at Red Lobster, and you have three sleeves. Oh. At Red Lobster, you were a waitress, a server. You, you, if you didn't crease your sleeves, you had to go home. No tips for you. Wow, that's like pieces of flair, right? That's really bad. I thought that was a joke. Well, we could go on and on, and I'm, I, like all of you are thinking of the, of the dumbest rule you have to follow right now. But today, I want to talk a little bit about religious rules, actually. And in the Jewish system, prior to the time of Christ, the rules actually did matter. They mattered a lot. Because it was by following a certain set of rules, the legal system of Judaism, that you were allowed to continue to participate in the community of faith where you found your salvation. Essentially, rule breakers were separated from the community where they were connected to God. And there's a very specific rule, a very specific sign that a person, that a man, was part of the community of faith, and that sign was circumcision. And you remember when, when God covenanted with Abraham, he said, you and all the males in your household, you you're, should be circumcised. And every child, that's, every boy child that's born should be circumcised on the eighth day. This is the sign of the covenant that, that we have together. And so all the people of Judaism were circumcised. That was the sign that they belonged to the community of faith by which they were saved. And in addition to that, there's a very specific process of restoration for those who had fallen out of community, had broken that legal system. And we know of the Ten Commandments, but there's also an entire long list of 600-plus laws in the, uh, that, that eventually the Jewish people were compelled to follow. And if you broke those laws, there was a specific way that you would be restored. You had to do this sacrificial, this animal sacrifice. And the, it was, the priest did it on behalf of, of the people once a year. The Day of Atonement would go into the, the holiest place uh, in, the, in the place of worship, in the tabernacle, in the temple, and would, would sprinkle blood on you know, these, this very ancient ritual. And that was how the Jewish people were restored after they had broken the rules. And if you absent that process, there was no way to be in 
shalom, in right relationship with the community and, by extension, with God. And it was into this context that Christianity was born. And we've talked about this before, how the early Christians struggled profoundly with the question of how much they needed to retain their Jewishness and the laws that came with it, and how much they needed to impose that Jewishness on Gentiles who eventually started to convert to Christianity. And so that was the context that, that Christianity was, was birthed in. And you really cannot understand the New Testament without understanding that fact. And so this question of rules was a, a major theme in Paul's letters to, letter to the Colossians. Now, you may remember that we are in week two of a three-week series in this, in this book, um, Paul's Epistle to the Colossians. And uh, as I said last week, we're not going through the whole book in a systematic way to get some comprehensive sense of what the book is about. We're really just, I'm, this is not really fair of me, but I'm totally just cherry-picking my three favorite passages in one of my favorite books of the Bible um, and giving a sermon on each of these passages. And last week we had the wonderful opening treatise that Paul writes in this letter um, about the person and work of Jesus Christ, and, and especially focused on verses 15 through 20, which we said was probably a creed or a hymn, something that Paul was quoting that already existed within Christianity that said very rich theological things about who Jesus was. And he was writing that to remind the Colossians that with, with words that they would recognize what it was that they came to believe, what their faith actually was, what the gospel that they received actually said. And today's passage is uh, from the second chapter of Colossians, and we're going to look at verses 6 through 23. And this is where Paul really begins to drive home his argument against some of the heresies that the Colossian Christians had fallen into. Now, you'll remember if you were here last week that, that Paul doesn't actually name the specific heresies or false beliefs that he's uh, trying to correct within the Colossian church. Um, we can infer a little bit from what he says, what some of those were, uh, but he doesn't, he doesn't name them specifically. But the one that he seems to be going after here is, is legalism. So we're going to talk about that a little bit, but I want to read this text to you or get started with it, with it anyway. Um, and if you're... Uh, following along in the red Bibles under your chairs, it's on page 957. If you're looking it up in your own Bible, it's near the back. <laughs> I'm going to start reading with verse 6. Paul says this, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, continue to live your lives in Him, rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the universe, and not according to Christ. For in Him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have come to fullness in Him, who is the head of every ruler and authority. In Him also you were circumcised with a spiritual circumcision. He's making this distinction between the, the physical sign in the old way and the, the spiritual sign in the new way. By putting off the body of the flesh in the circumcision of Christ, when you were buried with him in baptism, 
you were also raised with him through faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with him when he forgave, all, forgave us all our trespasses, erasing the record that stood against us with its legal demands. He set this aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public example of them, triumphing over them in it. Now, we'll look at the rest of that passage in a minute, but I want to break there for a few minutes. Did you hear anything in that bit of the passage that I just read about rules and laws? There's a lot in there, right? Somebody shout out something, just a, a phrase or a word that you saw in that passage as we read it that, that speaks about rules or laws. Again? A written code? Yep. The difference between the physical and the spiritual circumcision, which goes to the question of the sign of the covenant? Yep. What else do we see in there? Just as you were taught, right? So this is Paul saying, remember, this is the gospel you've received again. Yeah. Brenda. Yeah, that's a good one. Erasing the record that stood against us with its legal demands. Yeah, it says he set this aside. Yeah. Well, you could, we could kind of go through that passage a little bit at a time, and, and it's one of the reasons I love this book so much, it's very short, but it's very dense. It's just It's like sentence after sentence after sentence of, of beautiful language. But, you see, there's no longer any need for the Colossians, or by extension for us, to worry about being broken and incomplete. Because, as verse 10 says, as Christians, we're made full in Christ. It says he's the head of every ruler and authority. And then that little bit that we mentioned in, in verse 11 about the, the spiritual circumcision. So where, where before there was a specific physical sign that united a man and his family with the community of faith where they would find salvation. Now that sign is not required. And we've talked at, 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 in times past in other series about how the early church decided that they were not going to impose circumcision on Gentile converts to Christianity, much to the delight of the men and in the households that were being saved. <clears throat> See, and look at verse 13. Under the old rules, you were dead because of your own sin. Verse 13 describes this as your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. But under the new system, God has made you what? Made you alive together with him. I want you to think about the profound meaning of that statement for a minute. We were dead. That's pretty strong language, you know. We might say, well, come on, Paul. Let's dial it down a little. But we were dead. Just as sure as Jesus was dead when they took his body off the cross. But we've been made alive in him. Just as surely as the tomb was empty on the third day. 
And not only are we alive, but the record that stood against us has been erased. That's what verse 14 says. Erasing the record that stood against us. That's what Brenda noted and shared with us. He nailed it to the cross. <laughs> and there it is in that next verse, verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. So we've been made alive together with him. The record that stood against us before has been erased. And he has disarmed the authorities and the rulers that would hold that against us. The courthouse has been burned down. There's, I, it reminds me of that wonderful scene in the movie, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Have you seen that movie where... <laughs> Uh, he, uh, there's, there's a wonderful spiritual moment where the, the, you know, kind of petty criminals go in and, and they get baptized. And, and uh, Tim Blake Nelson just does a, such a great job of, of selling that scene. He says, the preacher done washed my sins away. <laughs> Which, you know, it's not exactly what we believe happens. <laughs> um, but he was excited in the moment. And, and uh, I couldn't help but think of that when I, when I started thinking about the, this legal system has just been raised that the one that means bring, bring down, not the one that means built up. <laughs> there are no more legal demands placed on us. He set this aside, it says. Nailed it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities. And so let's continue with the text in verse 16. Starts with one of my favorite words in the Bible, which is what? Therefore, and you know the question that I always ask when a passage starts with the word therefore, is what? What's the question? What is the therefore, therefore? I mean, you can't just start with that, which we didn't. So we don't have to go back and look at it. What we've just been talking about for 10 minutes, that's the basis. And Paul now says, he gets to the point. He says, therefore, because of all this stuff, do not let anyone condemn you in matters of food or drink, or of observing festivals, new moons, or Sabbaths. All of these things are part of the Jewish legal system. You can go back and look at them. Um, the, the legal code for food and drink is, is in Leviticus, uh, most notably. The moons and Sabbaths and things, you can read about that in Second Chronicles and in Nehemiah. Do not let anyone condemn you in any of these matters. Verse 17, these are only a shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. It's kind of an interesting metaphor, isn't it? This, the, the, the substance, the actual body, the, the physical thing is the real thing. Don't be concerned with the shadow that you see. Do not let anyone disqualify you, insisting on self-abasement and worship of angels, dwelling on visions puffed up without cause by a human way of thinking and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the universe, 
Why do you live as if you still belonged to the world? Why do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? All these regulations refer to things that perish with use. They are simply human commands and teachings. He lays it out pretty good there, doesn't he? Why are you still acting as if all these things are what save you? See, following the law and thinking that that makes you a good Christian is a little bit like practicing your parallel parking and thinking that'll make you a good NASCAR driver. Now, if you don't know me, you need to be aware that any NASCAR reference I make is purely ironic. I don't actually think it has anything to teach us. I'm looking at my friend Tim, who's probably like saying, finish up, pastor, I got to get home and start my NASCAR party. Oh, he says the race was on last night, so we're good. (laughs) It's not football season yet either, right? So I can like go till two. But no, there may be some appearance of similarity between parallel parking and, and zooming around and turning left for four hours. <laughs> I mean, driving really fast and skillfully and athletically. <laughs> there may be some appearance of similarity between the two things, but you can see that they're about as far apart as could be, right? The law is a shadow of, of, the, of the real thing. And in reality, doing the first one, the one that seems very precise and accurate and methodical, basically just ruins your chance to get really good at the other one, which is living in the fullness and the thrill of new life in Christ. Now, this does not mean that God doesn't care about our behavior I actually think that God does care about our behavior and that that the things that we do and say and the things that we fail to do and fail to say matter a great deal. But this is the difference between righteousness and holiness, if I can be a little picky. We are made righteous by the work and sacrifice of Christ, and there's not much that we can do to affect that change. Nothing, in fact. That's a gift from God. We are also made holy by the work of Christ. But that's, that's going to take some work on our part, too. And so we need to, to strive for holiness. That is, being set apart for special, special usage within the kingdom. That's what holy means. It means separate. Sanctified means it's the same, same, uh, same root. But you have to have this balance when you when you think about legalism and freedom. And man, like everything else in Christianity, it would be so much easier if it were just really obvious what exactly we should do all the time. In some ways, that that old 
pre-Christian system, the Jewish system, made a little bit more sense. It was very clear whether you had broken the law or not. It was very clear what you should do to restore yourself if you had. To think and work a little bit harder. See, legalism and asceticism, which is another of the heresies that Paul's criticizing here, which is just simply, he mentioned self-abasement, you're just denying yourself any pleasure whatsoever. Those are heresies. But they don't start out as heresy. Just like everything else in the faith that goes wrong, they start out with good intentions. If you've read C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, very early on in the book, he starts talking about the Christian view of the world and how it's different from something that he calls dualism. Dualism is the spiritual concept that there are these, these dueling powers in the world and that they are at war with one another and that they're essentially equal and, and one of them's going to win out perhaps, but, but they're apart from each other. And C.S. Lewis is kind of making an argument about cosmology, and we don't need to go into that too much. But what he does say there is that that's actually not true, that there's these two equal powers at war with one another. What he says is that there was goodness that became corrupted and became evil. And so the evil power in the world, in the, in the universe, is not on par with God. It's a distortion of, of God's creations. And I think that that principle actually applies really well to just about any sin you could name. You could trace it back to something good. And it's when God's goodness gets distorted that we have evil and sin. I'll give you an example. I'll give you a uh, kid-appropriate example that you could probably interpolate a little bit. The wonderful pleasure that we receive when we eat really good food can become gluttony. It's when you can't say no to more or when you insist on having it all and you can't place boundaries around that that you get to gluttony. It's not the pleasure of eating, or whatever you may be thinking. It's the inability to restrain oneself and to respect the boundaries that, that keep us in community with one another and with God. And just like those outward sins that we may be thinking of right now that, that are distortions of something that was good, I think legalism and asceticism, these heresies that Paul is railing against here started with something good. They started with a desire for holiness. But we don't do well with open-ended holiness. We do better when the rules are written down in all caps on a sign. (laughs) It's easier to follow them that way. You may think back to last week when I suggested that the pluralism that we find in America is actually, I think, good for our faith because it forces us to engage with people who believe different things than what we believe. And it forces us to to think critically about what we believe and why we believe it. 
but you, you can't just drift into syncretism and incorporate every belief you ever encounter into Christianity because some of them actually do not agree. It's like anything else. But when it comes to, to legalism, which is really today's topic, I think the final verse in this passage is really intriguing and very telling. Verse 23. He's talking about the regulations. And he's just said, these are simply human commands and teachings. And he goes on to say, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-imposed piety, humility, and severe treatment of the body. But they are of no value in checking self-indulgence. That's amazing. I wouldn't have said it that way. I would have said... Your impulse is good. You want to check self-indulgence. <laughs> you want to say no to things. You want to follow rules. You want to put a hedge around the law, to coin a phrase. You want to, you want to step back and, and be as holy as you can and then be even holier just in case. That's a good idea. It's not really how you're saved, but it's probably a good idea. Paul says, no, that's, that's worthless. It doesn't even work. That is, a, there's no value in that. So if holiness is your goal, and I think it ought to be if you are a Christian, you have to realize that a list of rules is no good to you. That is the old system. And in that old system, we were dead. And just as it is Christ's death and resurrection that make us righteous, that make us right with God, that bring us into the community of faith and community with Him. It is Christ's death and resurrection that gives us the power to move forward in holiness, which again is being set apart for use by God. It's by His grace in both cases. I want to close this morning with a quotation from St. Augustine. This is on the screen behind me. Where the devil could do something, there he met with defeat on every side. While from the cross he received the power to slay the Lord's body outwardly, it was also from the cross that the inward power by which he held us fast was put to death. It's in the cross that we are saved and it's in the cross that we are freed. And it's it's in order to remember that fact and to celebrate that fact that we celebrate communion together every week, every time we come together to worship. And uh, as I mentioned at the passing of the peace, we, we do things a couple different ways here at Artisan. Sometimes we're fairly formal and traditional and sometimes we're very casual and and uh, l lately, we've been a little more casual uh, with communion and, and um, 
just been extemporaneous in, in inviting you to the table. Um, but I wanted to be a little bit more formal today. Um, and I, I'm not sure why. I just kind of feel like this is uh, fitting for the, the beautiful concept that we've just been looking at to, to use a, a more traditional uh, welcome to the table. And so I'm going to read some prayers from our denomination's Book of Worship, which is a wonderful resource for this kind of thing. Uh, and then we'll be able to take communion together. Friends, this is the joyful feast of the people of God. Many will come from east and west and from north and south and sit at the table in the kingdom of God. This is the Lord's table. Our Savior invites those who trust him to share the feast that he has prepared. According to Luke, when our risen Lord was at table with his disciples, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him in the breaking of the bread. Come to this sacred table, not because you must, but because you may. Come to testify, not that you are righteous, but that you sincerely love our Lord Jesus Christ and desire to be his true disciples. Come not because you are strong, but because you are weak. Not because you have any claim on the grace of God, but because in your frailty and sin you stand in constant need of God's mercy and help. Come not to express an opinion but to seek God's presence and pray for the Spirit. Hear the words of our Lord Jesus Christ as they are delivered by the Apostle Paul. For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took a loaf of bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you do it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let us pray. Lord of all, we offer our sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving to you, presenting to you from your creation this bread and this wine. Gracious God, we pray that you will send your Holy Spirit on these gifts, that they may be the sacrament of the body of Christ and the blood of the new covenant. Unite us to your Son in his death and resurrection, that we may be acceptable to him, being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In the fullness of time, put all things in subjection under your Christ, and bring us to that heavenly feast where, with all your saints, we will be gathered in glory everlasting. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, the firstborn of all creation, the head of the church, and the author of our salvation. By him and with him and in him, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, all honor and glory is yours, Almighty Father, now and forever. Amen. As we continue to worship in song, our table will be open. All who are seeking to follow Jesus and serve him in the context of today's gathering, uh, of his people are welcome to come. Tear a piece of the bread, dip it in the wine or the juice, take and eat, and come as God calls you. This has been the Artisan Church Podcast. 
receive future podcasts, go to www.artisanchurch.com slash podcast or subscribe on iTunes. Thank you for listening.